Hello, welcome to In Her Lens, or welcome back. It has been a while since we've come out with new episodes, and I just want to thank you so dearly for tuning into this one. For those of you who don't know me, hello, my name is Nadine, and I am your host. I started In Her Lens amidst at the pandemic, and here we are, still rolling. I am an actress, and I'm currently based in Amsterdam. This podcast is dedicated to film and TV and centering marginalized voices in that sphere. We have been getting to know and are going to continue getting to know incredible and fascinating artists, makers, scholars, and leaders while we discuss their careers and thoughts in the sector that I love so very much, visual storytelling. Okay, today is a unique episode. It's a standalone episode, and it also kind of functions as a warmer to the upcoming third season of the podcast. I got to talk to the brilliant Naomi Johnson, the executive director of Imagine Native. And Imaginative is the world's largest indigenous film and media arts festival. It's held annually in Toronto in the month of October. And this weekend is its last running weekend online of this year. And I wanted to make sure that if you want, you can still check out the works presented. In this episode, you'll get to know Naomi and her personal journey towards her work today at Imaginative. We talk about the mission of the film festival, about its day-to-day operations, and this year's theme of homecoming. Naomi shares her thoughts on the integral importance of Indigenous storytelling and Indigenous voices in this industry and much beyond it. So, without further ado, here we go again. Here is Naomi Johnson on In Her Lens. Hi, Naomi. Welcome to In Her Lens. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of this third season now already. As we were just saying, it's been a long time coming. It is now October, but we first got in contact in May. The podcast, usually we start with kind of like a rapid fire, but for this season, I've designed four questions around the seasons of the year. Would you be interested in answering those? Oh, I'm in the arts. I love thematics. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. The first one is spring. What is the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning? I, okay, I usually will prepare myself for doing my face. <laughs> so I do a lot of skin prep and it's kind of my own meditation time to chill and take care of myself. So I've said this like even throughout the pandemic and even though we've been on Zoom and we never had to go into an office space and like look people in the face, I still like I made sure my face was done up and my hair was good. <laughs> so, but for me, it was more of a, like a self-care thing. So yeah, doing my face. The next question, Summer, um, if you could choose any artist, uh, past or living, that you would like to go see in concert tonight, who would you go see? Jimi Hendrix. That's such an easy one. <laughs> it's Oh, that's also a great answer. (laughs) 
quick and easy. Who also has um, Indigenous ancestry? Not a lot of people know that. There's a fabulous exhibition at the Smithsonian um, up where we belong. And it was an exhibition that featured Indigenous musicians. And that's actually where I learned. Oh, wow. He had like a grandmother that was Indigenous. That's really cool. I also did not know that. So thank you for sharing. Autumn, are you a coffee or tea person? I grew up being a tea granny for sure, but I had children and coffee is just a necessity now. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. In the winter, um, is there a word or mantra or phrase that you carry with you when the days get a little bit darker? Hmm. I find the winter really beautiful and for the longest time it was my favorite season. So I don't ever felt like I needed something to get through winter. As I'm getting older, I may develop a mantra. I don't have one right now because I am definitely feeling a different way about winter as I age. (laughs) I do feel like that's also kind of a mantra though, like loving on winter and the shorter days and the beauty of winter and hibernation and all of that. Thank you so much for answering those questions and thank you for being here. So as I explained a little bit in the voiceover before this episode starts, you are the executive director of Imagine Native Film and Media Arts Film Festival. It is the world's largest indigenous festival showcasing film, video, audio, digital, interactive media um, by all indigenous creators. But before we talk about all of that wonderfulness, I would love to talk about you and where you are from, how you came to this work, uh, maybe starting with where you grew up. Sure, yeah. Um, So I'm from Six Nations, um, which is a reserve um, in southern Ontario. Um, I am Bear Clan. I am Mohawk and Ekahaga. I have grown up on and off my reserve, mostly on. But, you know, being where I'm located, I've been very lucky that, and I'm very mindful that I come from a reserve community that is relatively close to other municipalities. So I think about that a lot running this organization is that, you know, our staff complement, the leadership is 100% Indigenous. Um, So all the three directors are Indigenous Mm. people. And then the board is primarily Indigenous. And our staff complement is 75% right now Indigenous people, all from all different communities. And I think about how a lot of them have to leave their home communities that are from much further places. So, you know, like I grew up, (laughs) my first house um, did not have running water, did not have an indoor bathroom, um, but we had a Nintendo. So I think that kind of gives you context for like how I grew up when I grew up. You know, I'm not that old, but being even south of Toronto, you know, a lot of people will think that, you know, they often think when Canada, you know, the the reserve communities are in the north or further north than Toronto for sure. But yeah, no. um, Yeah. So so that's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And what was school like for you? Did you like going to school? Uh, Did you like learning academia? What does that look like? That is, oh, wow. That is a, that is not an easy thing to answer because, um, you know, growing up the way I did, like I said, it was like on reserve, off reserve, back on reserve, back off reserve. Mm. And by the time I graduated uh, university, I think I'd been to a total of 13 schools. Wow. I just, I moved a lot. I was always the new kid. Um, It took me quite a while to find my love of learning and being Mm. in school 
And I would definitely attribute that to being raised by my grandparents. So when I turned, um, when I was in grade six or 12, I, I, I just told them, I'm coming to live with you. <laughs> That's just happening. And I remember my grandpa picked me up and I had a, a garbage bag full of belongings and a hamster. <laughs> I made the decision. This is, I needed stability. And ever since then, I just, the grades, the grades started to shoot up. I started to excel. And I was like, that's when I discovered like, it might be kind of smart. So that's when I really fell in love with learning. And I've, I, oh, I love to learn. And I'm, I'm so happy to see it in my own children my daughter like she is everyone's like oh wow she takes after her mom like she's like mm-hmm. whenever she's not in school she's actively learning to do something even mm-hmm. whether it's reading or creating something like it's just kind of you can see it kind of in the dna and uh took me a, lo- a little longer to get there but yeah uh, so long long answer to that is i love i love school if i could have done it over again uh, i would have you know I would have maybe invested a little more into it in my younger years. And then it maybe put me on different paths. I don't know. I love school, but I did not have a great time of it at first. Yeah. I understand. I moved around a lot as a kid as well. And it looked very different for me. But uh, being the new kid is a very big life experience if you have that quite often. And it does really form how you then present yourself in the world. Um, Do you remember one of the first times when visual storytelling and film became important to you like something that you would want to dedicate more time to in your life well my background like I started out in the art like visual arts like that was always kind of my background um I thought I was going to be an artist a painter and that's what I studied I went to uh, post-secondary um for studio uh, visual arts painting so I think when it came to figure out that I wanted to be in a space where I was creating a place to present art that was definitely when I was 19 and I first uh, started my job at the Woodland Cultural Center and you know for those who don't know the Woodland Cultural Center is on the site of a former residential school in my community um, called the Mohawk Institute it was also given the name the mush hole because they ate mush three times a day in that school. Mm. And um, in the 1972, they repurposed the place to become a cultural center. So it had um, initially like a library, a museum collection. They started a language program and then eventually there became galleries and a permanent museum space. So it was basically the antithesis of what residential school had been intended to do. And that was to promote, preserve and protect culture and language and our arts and our visual forms. So going into that space at such like an impressionable time in my life when I was just kind of starting into the arts, I'm like, wow, this is a gem. (laughs) Is an indigenous person to have a place like that, which had already been established at by that point, like 30 years, I think near 30 years, it was um, pretty special. And I'm like, this is where I'm going to be. This is, this is what I want to do. I want to figure out ways to create space for artists and the, and, uh, yeah, really celebrate them and present them. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what you do now at Imaginative, which you joined in 2019 with the foresight that you would take over as executive director in 2020. That was the plan, yep. Yeah, that was the plan. And obviously 2020 was one year that we will never forget. <laughs> Why did you want to take on this festival and what drive do you 
back then to take on this work? I think I had come to a point where I had really felt like I wanted to prove something to myself that I could do it. And I wanted to, mm. like, for context, I've only ever really worked for any considerable length at time at Indigenous organizations. And that's been a very conscious choice on my part. I think there's there was a long period, you know, when I was working professionally in the world where there wasn't this level of competency about or understanding about Indigenous history and um kind of what we've had to go through the truth and reconciliation hadn't happened yet not many people knew about residential schools um i know that from just being on the grounds at woodland and taking people through those historical tours and having teachers tell me can we not talk about this this isn't why we're here and that's what they said to me back then when i would take them on tours so i've seen the growth so that's at knowing that like imaginative is my sister said mm-hmm. when I told her I got I was trying out for this the, the associate director job that would become executive director job she's like you're basically going to be running the indigenous google <laughs> like it is the, <laughs> it is the organization um when it comes to indigenous arts presentation and leadership so it's like my ambitious self just couldn't help herself. And um, I'm glad I did because it's been like some of the best people that I've worked with has been through this place. I'm pretty lucky. For the people who don't know anything about the festival, what is the mission of Imaginative? Yeah, so we are here to promote um, Indigenous narrative sovereignty and advocate for Indigenous narrative sovereignty. And that is, you know, taking into account that for pretty much the history of cinema, we have not had agency of our own stories and we've not had voice to tell our own stories. So that's why Imaginative exists. We are a place where to be in the festival and to be presented, you have to be an Indigenous creator, you know, ideally an Indigenous director-led project. Um, and that goes for all the things that we present. So any of the video games or AR works or any of the exhibition spaces, all our performers, they're all Indigenous. And there are different parts of the festival. There's the live in-person festival, which is happening this month, end of this month, coming up very soon next week. But there's also <laughs> ongoing year-round projects. There is the Institute. I want to talk about the programming maybe first of the film festival. Um, who is part of the programming team and what are some of the things they look up when they're select look at when they're selecting works for the festival? Yeah, so our programming team is led by Lindsay Montour, who's also happens to be from Six Nations. Um mm-hmm. She's uh, in the place like a festival director, uh, newly came on. I uh, wish she hadn't been here a little earlier, but I'm very glad she's here now. And uh, we also have Caitlin Thomaselli, who's our program manager. Um, so they are kind of like our administrative leads, and they're the ones that select each year a third-party programming team. So the programmers, they are given certain tasks because the volume of works that we have submitted, it is the most that we've ever had in the history of the organization. I think like this year we had, um, I think it was over 700 submissions, which is, wow. I mean, when you only have a week and so many slots to put people, it's like a celebration, but also a bit of a, a heavy thing to have to decide, like, how do you, 
how do you pick and choose? Um, mm. So, you know, we have a selection of shorts and features and the, the shorts will get grouped thematically. And that's usually Lindsay's job as the festival, the director to decide how that works. And then they, they talk it out as a team and they deliberate and like making it very clear. Our staff, our admin, they select these people that come in and do this selection work and then they their hands off and they respect the process. And we have a very um, well flushed out artistic policy that gets reviewed every year by our, our board and the festival director. So we try to be fair and mindful in how we program and who we program. And just because a work might not get selected for this year, it has nothing to do with like the quality of the work or how much we love the work or how great the artists may be. Sometimes it's just thematically some things will fit better and in places. Um, and that, that's hard, but it's like, I think Lindsay had asked me this year, could we add another day to the festival? <laughs> just like, I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm the one that has to deal with the finances of things, right? So I got to sometimes make some of the more practic- pragmatic decisions. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a film festival and it's also a media arts festival. Um, what are some of the other things apart from uh, film and shorts that that are being shown? Yeah, so we have um, the digital and interactive space, DNI space for short. I'm really would love to just call it the arcade because that tells mm. people exactly what it is. Um, right, right. We're right in the Tiff Bell light box. Um, and so it's like right as you enter that building to the left is a beautiful big space. And we feature uh, digital and interactive works. So like I said, like video games, AR, VR, and then we host um, a series of talks and panels in that space as well, all to do with that sector. Um, and that space is completely free and open to the public. So mm. it's like one of the ways we try hard to be really accessible at Imaginative. Um, like our ticket prices are very low, lots of free stuff. On Fridays, we have TD free Fridays. So like I said, and we do a lot of um, discounts for, you know, Indigenous groups and schools and pretty much I mean if you email us and ask for a rate we'll give it because <laughs> we just want people to show up mm-hmm. yeah and then yeah. yeah aside from the the, the things that happen like in the tiff bell light box uh, we also do um the art crawl event is always really popular we partner with like seven different galleries in Toronto um and we do uh exhibitions of media works uh this year we're ending our art crawl stop at the uh, AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario. And uh, throughout the week, we have tons of like uh, performance arts, dance, uh, music, concerts. Yeah, it's it's a a real party. Yeah, and it really is the largest Indigenous Fest. I mean, it's just so cool to hear so many different uh, art forms coming together in this very special week. What you were saying about, uh, you know, getting people there, what is that like in running a festival? And from your perspective, there are a lot of festivals all around the world, but um, one big thing is always getting the work to the people. What kind of work is uh, Imaginative doing to getting its message to, I guess, the more mainstream public? Yeah, one of the things that came out of the pandemic and, you know, as challenging as those years were, extremely challenging, um, Mm. one of the things that I will say was a bit of a benefit was it kind of forced a lot of us to figure out how to present in a different space and in a different way. Um, And, you know, our whole drive was knowing we are a screen-based, primarily we we present screen-based content 
it allowed us to keep paying artists for, you know, screening fees and Q and A fees. And uh, so we figured it out. (laughs) Mm. So we built this structure, we built this method of delivering content beyond just like you maybe not being able to come to Toronto, you can still view us in the comfort in your own home. So we've taken effort to make sure that's still something we can do. So following the activities from the 17th to the 23rd, when those are done in Toronto, the next week, if you have a pass for the in-person stuff, you can still access it online. That pass is also available to anybody in the world (laughs) to purchase. (laughs) And it's like, it's a, a really excellent way to get to access this content, you know, from home, but also it supports the organization quite a bit too. And, you know, all of that goes right into our general um, revenues and allows us to, you know, maintain our operations year round. So it, it's a good support. So if you can't come, please get an online test. <laughs> yes. Um, I do also, yeah, in terms of finances and all of that, and as your role as the executive director, what exactly falls under your role and um, how has that maybe changed from when you first started to now in 2023? Yeah, I think when I first started, the idea was, you know, as the executive director, I'm going to be administration. I'm going to be um, operations, figuring out how to fundraise, writing the public grants, having those sponsorship meetings. Uh, HR is a lot of it too. And mm. um, I think what happened after the course of the pandemic, because we had like everybody, everybody just like, maybe I want to try something else. We had a lot of people just like, for whatever reason, good reasons, no hard feelings, they've moved on to different positions. Mm. Um, Having kind of that narrow focus in my role, which I initially was actually kind of looking forward to, I'm not going to lie, because I was an artistic director at another organization and I had done a lot of um, work in that field. And I just, my kind of... I love budgets. I love figuring out budgets. And uh, I said that in the interview. I'm pretty sure that's why they gave me the ED job. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but all of that experience really served me in in these last few years because I had to wear multiple hats more than I think any other ED might have had to um, in this kind of position. But I'm so thrilled to say that we have our three directors back in place and have Lindsay just like really focusing on the festival delivery has been a has has been a tremendous help because yeah I had to pretty much the way I describe my role is I'm involved in a little bit of everything but it's like how deep do I put my fingers into everything and you know sometimes I might have to put them in deeper in some places and then they're they're okay I always tell people if you haven't heard from me in a while it means you're doing a good job No news is good news. Yeah. <laughs> um, this year's theme is homecoming, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Where did this uh, come from? And will you tell us a little bit about yeah. the theme? So coming out of the last edition of the festival, man, there were, we were definitely a bit rusty in some places. <laughs> and it was because we had, like I said, we had some people leave, new people come on. Not one person had aside from me and a few from 2019 actually delivered on an in-person festival even the ones that had delivered on an in-person festival had not ever led the thing so we so it was um and saying all that I was very proud of them I 
cannot believe what we pulled off given the context of the situation we were dealing with. But what became very clear to me after that festival and plus being able to travel again and visit other festivals, like we have definitely a network, especially in the indigenous uh, festival sphere, kind of getting to experience the vibe and the feel of those places. And like, this is, this is important. Um, I never thought I would say as somebody who's in the arts, I'm not afraid of AI taking over in a way I think other industries are because festivals and organizations and events were really about creating space for humans to come in, be together, enjoy space together, feel warm, feel welcomed and celebrate art made by humans. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where the idea and the concept for that theme came from is like, we're all hosts. Let's make this a home for those people and coming from all over the world just to spend time with us for this week. That's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. I find it a very, very beautiful theme and I'm really intrigued to see uh, the work that uh, is mashed up to it. So specifically this season with the podcast, I am thinking a lot about climate change and filmmaking Mm -hmm. and climate justice. We live in uncertain times and painful and divided times. As we're talking today, there is so much pain happening in Palestine, in Israel, and in Gaza. And the world lives in a lot of pain in the displacement and disempowerment of people and of home. So I really believe, and I know that indigenous stories and voices and work should be central to the conversation around climate change. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that and what is your thoughts on indigenous voices in the climate space at the moment? Yeah, I think, um, I don't think we've been tapped into enough I can say that with confidence, just from being in a lot of um, conversations and watching over the years, kind of the interest rise in the discussion, rise as literal temperatures have risen and there's been more impacts felt. And like, I think about like how I was raised and the values that I've had since, since childhood of, you know, um, Okay, so for example, um, in my community, we have um, the Ganyohanyo, uh, which is the Thanksgiving address in Kyuga. And that's said before any kind of important meeting or gathering. And what the Ganyohanyo does is it goes through every element in life that we need to just take a pause and give thanks to, because without these things, we don't, we don't exist. You know, so it'll, it's a, a speech that we'll talk about, you know, the waters, the air, the animals, the people, um, the medicine plants. And it goes through all of these things. And it's always with the intent that let's get our minds in a good place and let's be thankful and just be mindful. Like, and so like things like that. And you kind of, I don't want to say I took it for granted, but I didn't really realize kind of the world that I was being raised in had these kind of values that would just it was just natural and obvious and then to hear that that's actually not the case for a lot of the world mm. but they're trying and they're trying to you know repair some of the kind of the ways that we have been living and it's still a struggle like it's still a struggle like there's there's not a lot of long-term thinking I feel with society and that goes back to yet another value. So another teaching we have is we talk about the seven generations. You don't ever think about yourself in this moment you're in. You think about those seven generations that are coming. 
and what are you leaving them? And then we have another saying, this earth that we have, our children are inheriting it from us. We don't own this place. We're caretakers for it because we're giving it to our children. And, you know, even to expand on that, you think about the seven generations that went before you as well. So it's, it's, it's kind of like, there's a lot of beauty and indigenous knowledge um, and a lot of truths. And I think the world would be a better place if people could maybe learn a little bit of a different way of interacting with our, our home, our earth. I think so too. Climate change, it also exacerbates, you know, the difficulties already faced by indigenous communities. Um, and if we talk about political and e economic marginalization and loss of land and resources and discrimination, uh, on t and this comes on top of everything of a human experience that we are all having of just being alive. Mm, what stories do you see being told at the moment by indigenous filmmakers? And do you think there is boxing or pigeonholing happening? Is there a trend, um, what kind of stories are being told naturally and what stories are kind of being forced upon if that's a thing that's happening, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you, it's kind of a very interesting question that you've raised because I think as Indigenous artists, you're always feeling like you're creating work that at times can be traumatic or it can be... Um, educational for other eyes and you're trying to and it's kind of like a I don't want to say I don't know if double-edged sword is the right phrase for this but you feel like you if I don't tell these stories or it is my duty to tell these stories otherwise someone else who has no experience is going to do it mm. right mm -hmm. but then at the same time I hear from many artists like I just want to create <laughs> like, just, right right exactly yeah, yeah. Like, and any other artists from any other, you know, uh, race or nationality, they never feel like I need to tell this Canadian thing or mm -hmm. this American thing, or they can just be a person mm -hmm. that's interacting with the world. And then they're putting out whatever that creative thing is. Um, and I do think like, I mean, one day I hope that we can get to a place where you can just you know, Indigenous art is by Indigenous people and it can be anything. And like our festival yeah. has that. And, you know, we do program mm -hmm. a lot in that ways and ensures that, you know, you, you could be watching a horror movie or like, yeah, it's not all just going to be about residential school. And, you know, certainly there's there's all kinds of content and that is in the festival. But um, yeah, the freedom just to create and to be an artist is, I think, very important. Mm -hmm. What are your hopes for the festival in the coming years after? I mean, I know that you're in the midst of all the final details for next week. Um, but do you have a future vision? Where do you see yourself going with it? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think just to exist and maintain is a big thing to celebrate. Mm -hmm. I mean, any non-for-profit arts organizations, it's it's really challenging. And I know you know, in Canada, we have public funders that, you know, support and do operating support. We're one of those few organizations that are lucky enough to get operating support, but um, it's certainly the percentage of what we get. It does not come anywhere near what we're actually outputting is an operating, uh, is an organization. So I mean, it seems like such a bleak, I just hope we're here. <laughs> 
but uh, yeah, coming out of the pandemic years and into this year has been very challenging. And I'm speaking for, I think, all arts organizations when I say this, especially being based in Toronto. The expenses have been extraordinary. Inflation is a real thing. I can thing. only imagine. Trying to maintain staff to like stay in the GTA area. It's, um, or GTA is, is, uh, it's a big puzzle that I, we ha- I have to figure out. I have to figure out. Well, ways that we can support, I would hope, you know, people bypass, international people like myself bypass so we can see the work. And are there other ways that, um, you know, as viewer or in interaction that we can help continue uh, to fund and to keep these uh keep this festival alive yeah for sure like obviously if you're around come come to cinema please mm-hmm. if you're not around and you can't be here for the festival then yes get a pass watch things online and you know if you if you have it and you're able donations always go a long way too because that allows us just to ensure that the, the money is going where it needs to go this year it was definitely flights and accommodations for artists <laughs> because that's one of the things that are shot way up with inflation but yeah there's a lot of ways to support us merch we have beautiful festival merch too merch and, just, and if you can't do any of those things spread the word about imaginative and you know share us on our social your socials and get the word out because it's a it's an organization that doesn't exist like on this scale anywhere else in the world it's very special thank you very much for spending your time with us really appreciate it yeah thank you i'm glad we finally were able to connect me too i'm happy (laughs) i kept it under 30 minutes i mean i have a bajillion questions but i think that we hit all the major points Thank you deeply, Naomi, for finding the time to sit down with me in crunch time. I'm very grateful to you, and it was wonderful to meet you. Listener, this is this year's Imaginative's last online streaming weekend, so all of the works that were screened in person this year are now available at the click of a button. So if you would like a pass and get in while the getting is good, look no further. In the description of this episode, in the episode notes, you will find all the links. I've also added Imaginative's social media so you can keep track and support their other year-round activities. So I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.